So Camarillo, I think one of our strengths is that we're a national network. Uh, we have sites all across Canada and very keen people who are interested in collecting this. Another big strength is that we've already collaborated with other countries who are doing similar things. That was Dr. Shaheen Jamal talking about the Canrio Network. She is joined by Dr. Carrie Yee on this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Daniel Ennis. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Carrie Yee. Hi, everyone. My name is Carrie Yee. I'm a rheumatologist in Edmonton. I'm a clinical assistant professor at the U of A, and I'm a member of Canrio. And Dr. Shaheen Jamal. Hi, everyone. My name is Shaheen Jamal. I'm a rheumatologist in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia and interested in adverse events of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Both are founding members of CanRio, which is the Canadian Research Group of Rheumatology and Immuno-Oncology. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So I think CanRio is really interesting, and I think we should start by defining some terms first. So Shaheen, can you tell us a bit about what the CanRio network actually is? So the CanRio network is a group of uh, people, clinicians, researchers, basic scientists across Canada who are interested in some of the adverse events that occur as a result of the new immunotherapies for cancer. Uh, So that's what we are as a group, and we are studying, right now one of our main focuses is studying prospectively patients who develop these adverse events clinically and linking it to their biodata. And Carrie, so Shaheen started telling us about uh, the adverse events. Can you actually expand on that? What What is an adverse event? What drugs are we even talking about mm, here? Okay, adverse events are like side effects, basically. And immune checkpoint inhibitors are this very exciting new class of medications used to treat cancer and actually predominantly used to treat metastatic stage 4 cancer, which is the extra exciting part about it. So in some ways, I think of it as almost opposite of chemotherapy. So chemotherapy kills a bunch of cells, including immune cells, and immune checkpoint inhibitors actually activate T cells, which is an immune cell, and allows your immune system to kill cancer cells. I think to actually to expand on that, as rheumatologists, we often forget that our immune system is also a very important part of cancer surveillance. And, you know, we think of it as our immune system is important for fighting infections and that when our immune system doesn't work, it causes autoimmune disease. Um, However, our immune system also has an important role in cancer. And the oncologists have really tried to harness the role of the immune system for cancer surveillance, which is why they are targeting uh, drugs that actually activate the immune system or inhibit the inhibitors of the immune system. Uh, and therefore allow the the immune system to fight cancer, which, as Carrie says, is opposite of traditional chemotherapy, which the approach there was to just kill everything, including immune cells, and hopefully cancer cells would all die. And so that's where this is super cool, because it's really activating our immune system. And uh, this, I think, is is going to help us to learn a lot more about our autoimmune diseases, which is the exciting part for us at Canrio. Absolutely. Wait, can I add some more to this? This is so exciting. Of course, yeah. Carrie, go ahead. Okay. We don't need Danny. Yeah. (laughs) I'm excused. Perfect. (laughs) Go for it, Carrie. That'd be great, yeah. I think the other great thing about immunotherapy is that you can develop one drug that fights all types of cancers because it really isn't the drug fighting the cancer. It's asking our super complicated, super smart immune system to fight the cancer why one drug can now be used to treat so many different cancers. 
And what sort of cancers are we actually treating with immune checkpoint inhibitors? The main ones right now are uh, melanoma. That was the original disease that it was approved for. And now I see a lot of non-small cell lung cancer. What else have you seen, Shaheen? Well, there's lots of genital urinary cancers, a lot of this ENT cancers, sarcoma, lymphoma, um, some types of pancreatic cancer, some types of breast cancer, uh, and I think uh, some squamous cell cancers. And in fact, the FDA a few years ago had given almost carte blanche to uh, approve these drugs for refractory stage four cancers that had no treatment. Uh, and some of these patients who had no other options and were, you know, had a very high mortality from their cancer have been treated with immune, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And some of them have had a good response of their cancer. So they're being used for all kinds of cancers. Uh, and I think you know, if you look at the data, they say 50% of cancer patients uh, in the next 10 years will be able to be treated with immunotherapy. So it's a very, very exciting, exploding area. So with one drug or multiple drugs, but one drug at a time treating multiple cancers, what are the general targets for the immune checkpoint inhibitors? Well, the two main ones right now that are approved in Canada for use are basically monoclonal antibodies against CTLA-4 and then either PD-1 or PDL one which are both breaks um, on the immune system. They're basically inhibitors of T-cells. So currently we're targeting those two um, inhibitors, but there's many other molecules and targets being tested right now. How many drugs are now approved for use? So currently, Health Canada has approved seven uh, checkpoint inhibitors. And so many people with, uh, you know, with many of our patients uh, might be eligible to get treatment for their cancer with uh, one of these agents. So rheumatology, what do you guys have to do with uh, these medications in the first place? They're being used to treat cancers. Why, why, why do we even need rheumatologists in the mix? Well, if you think about it, if you're going to basically take the brakes off of the immune system, you're kind of giving it free reign. Right now, there's a lot of inhibitors in place to prevent autoimmunity um, that help with self-tolerance, basically. And if you break that, then you basically can get uh, inflammation directed to self-antigens, and that can cause rheumatic diseases. What sort of clinical spectrum are we looking at here? I would say, this is what I tell my residents. Think of any organ and add an itis to it, and that can happen. That's great. What are some of the common things that we're bumping into? Shaheen, maybe you can take this one. And I think the commonest thing that we as rheumatologists see are, is inflammatory arthritis. Uh, commonly, we see inflammatory arthritis that's symmetric, that mimics rheumatoid arthritis or mimics polymyalgia rheumatica. Uh, but there's a huge spectrum. Many of us, many of us have, I mean, sarcoidosis, vasculitis, particularly large vessel vasculitis. Myositis is the other big. So those are sort of the big categories. But then there's everything, as Carrie has said, everything in between. And the other interesting thing that we're seeing is this sort of rapidly progressive osteoarthritis or inflammatory osteoarthritis. Uh, and I think that's a, an emerging area. Uh, recently, there was a publication looking at ultrasound findings in our patients who have joint pain, and it, it seems that ultrasound-wise, they have emphysitis. So it's emphysitis that causes their knee pain, not clearly synovitis. And so this is all emerging, and we're just at the spectrum of learning about it, but those are the big patterns. I think the other thing that we as rheumatologists, so you know, most centers across Canada have a Canrio person who's interested. So if you have patients, uh, you can refer to them. But I think the thing that all rheumatologists are going to have to have some uh, understanding of is their patients who have 
pre-existing rheumatic disease because the patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease were excluded from the clinical trials. But as you know, our patients also get cancer. And so that's where the big question is going to be, is how to treat our patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease. So there's going to be the de novo uh, arthritis or the de novo rheumatic events, but also how to manage our patients with pre-existing disease. Carrie, how do we actually go about telling the difference between patients who have an immune checkpoint inhibitor-related inflammatory arthritis or just incident rheumatoid arthritis, for example? Yeah, that's a really good question. And right now, it's a little bit hard to tell. I think for a long time, we were underdiagnosing um, rheumatic immune-related adverse events from immune checkpoint inhibitors. But I almost feel like the pendulum might be swinging the other way, and we're actually blaming every little thing that occurs after someone has started on ICI therapy on their ICI. So I think you have to look at, um, I use a lot of like CTCA grading. So a lot of people have joint pain before they start immune checkpoint inhibitors, but then I see if that grade has changed. And so that might represent a flare. Um, the other differentiating thing is if you get someone with, um, you know, polyarthritis, small joint, if they end up being seropositive, we've learned now that most um, inflammatory arthritis from immune checkpoint inhibitors is seronegative. So if I see seropositive, I generally think that's probably pre-existing rheumatoid arthritis that maybe was missed and maybe flared on IO therapy. Um, and then other things that you might think about is like, is this kind of a disease that presents in this age group normally, right? This is the general demographic. Acute onset polyarthritis occurring in a 75-year-old male, less likely. So, it is, so sometimes it can be hard to define the causation or association but the negative serology and in your inflammatory arthritis, that might be a helpful clue that it's immune checkpoint related. How do we actually go about treating immune-related adverse events? Are there any principles of therapy that rheumatologists should think about? So I think the very first thing that we have to remember is that these patients have cancer. And you know, our responsibility to the patient is to help them receive treatment for their cancer. Uh, and a lot of times, as I mentioned earlier, in clinical trials, patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease were excluded. And so when, and when patients developed autoimmune uh, toxicity, they were removed from trials. And so uh, often the oncologists want to stop their treatment or hold their treatment and not, don't know really how to manage it. So our responsibility, I think the, the main principle is, that, is to facilitate their cancer treatment, however that looks. Um, and, uh, and most patients are on board with that. That's what their goal is. And often they underreport their joint symptoms because they're afraid that their cancer treatment will be held if they report joint symptoms. So if a patient develops one of these rheumatic IRAEs, do they have to stop checkpoint inhibitor? Question one. No. No. If you develop a rheumatic IRAE, does that tell you anything about the prognosis of the cancer or the success of their treatment? I think there's conflicting. Yes, the data is conflicting. There, I think for a long time, we thought that it probably had a good prognostication. It kind of like represented, think, represented like a robust immune yeah, response absolutely. sort of concept. But then I think there's also been other studies that actually have shown the opposite. And I think that the jury's still out on that one. So the challenge is, so if you look at other autoimmune adverse events, so for example, 
in melanoma patients, if they get vitiligo, that has been associated with a good tumor response. So if you have metastatic melanoma, get put on a checkpoint inhibitor, and then you develop vitiligo, those patients tend to have a good response uh, of their melanoma. And probably, as Carrie sort of alluded to, uh, that suggests that the immunotherapy has actually turned their immune system on. So it successfully did what it was supposed to do, and therefore the patient got vitiligo as a marker of their immune system being active. Uh, and vitiligo, typically, we don't immunosuppress for vitiligo. Um, the challenge in rheumatic disease, often our patients, because they develop this arthritis or myositis or sarcoidosis, we have to immunosuppress them. And, you know, initially, the initial studies suggested that if you got arthritis, that was also a, those patients had a good tumor response. But more recently, and even in CanRio, we found we have a, a large retrospective review, the largest in the world to date. And in our review, we found that those patients who received, uh, who, or who had arthritis and received immunosuppression had a less robust tumor response. And what we don't know is whether that's the fact that they had a rheumatic adverse event is a marker for a less good tumor response, or if it's because we immunosuppressed them and undid the effect of the immunotherapy, and that's why they had less of a tumor response. So again, that's right. you know still stuff we're learning about. So we're activating their immune system to treat their cancer. They develop a rheumatic IRAE. We put them on an immune suppressant, which may sway things the other way. We're not, we're not sure. We don't know. And okay. there are studies that definitely show steroids can blunt the tumor response. Um, but I think it's hard to apply that to what we know now because our retrospective cohort included really high doses of steroids. Because that's what oncologists typically do, and that's what study protocols used to dictate. But I think we're moving towards far less steroid use, earlier DMAR therapy. So, um, yeah, we might see different results. It's hard now. to know. Yeah, I think the challenge is because you know this field is changing rapidly. Every month or two months, there's more and more and more case series, you know, experience-based literature. That's really what it is. There's not RCT literature for how to manage these toxicities. And as we look at each other's experience we change how we manage. So, you know, if you look at a retrospective cohort, we used 50, 60 milligrams of prednisone for joint pain. Maybe we didn't need to. We didn't use any DMARDs because we were afraid. We didn't know if these would be chronic or not chronic. So it was always prednisone. And now we're starting to use DMARDs earlier because we're learning from our mistakes and other people's mistakes. Along the lines of prognosis, um, what I do think is really interesting is there was a study that looked at inflammatory joint pain and inflammatory arthritis after discontinuation of immune checkpoint inhibitors. And two things that we learned from that is one, um, inflammatory arthritis can continue to persist after ICIs are discontinued. But two, the people who had continuation of their inflammatory arthritis have better tumor uh, outcomes. So it was like they had sustained um, activation of their immune system would be my takeaway from that. That was one study, but I think that's a really interesting thing to think about for prognosis. So totally getting getting mixed signals and, and I assume not enough literature to differentiate ooh, vitiligo specifically, good prognostic marker, sarcoidosis, bad prognostic marker. This is data that we have to figure out over time. I think the challenge is every tumor is different every toxicity is different because it's all different immune pathways that turn on these various clinical manifestations and phenotypes. So we can't necessarily say that because vitiligo uh, is a marker of a good tumor response, arthritis is also, you know, and that's the big challenge. 
Right. And so that's again where we need long-term prospective clinical data to, to really identify patterns, tumor-specific, drug-specific. And you know, today what happens, patients get combination immunotherapy, they get switched from one to another because they have one, you know, they might get colitis with something, they get switched to something else, and then they get thyroiditis, then they get switched to something else. So we don't know the chicken and the egg, uh, and there's immune activation. But as Carrie said, it's it's really interesting that those patients who end up having chronic immune activation, even when their immunotherapy is stopped, they seem to have a better cancer response, which suggests that once their immune system is activated, it's activated. That's, and that's, that's been shown news. for arthritis. It's been shown for skin. So vitiligo also they showed that because people will often have ongoing vitiligo, a worsening vitiligo, even though they've stopped their trial, they're not on the drug anymore. And those people tend to have a better tumor response. How about in patients who uh, have a pre-existing rheumatic disease? What do you guys think about continuing or discontinuing their immune suppression before they start their immune checkpoint inhibitor? Also controversial. Mm-hmm. You know what, I I have to say, most patients that I've seen like this, their DMARDs have been stopped already because a lot of them were tried on chemotherapy first, and then they progressed on chemotherapy, and then they're being considered for ICI therapy. So I have to admit, six months ago, I was actually starting them on DMARDs preventatively because there was a study that showed DMARDs didn't affect tumor outcomes, and I thought flares can because they can lead to discontinuation or holding of ICI therapy. And then, this is what we were talking about, how we're constantly changing our practice. Three months ago or so, a study came out that said um, initiating DMARDs at the time of ICI therapy might be associated with poor tumor response. Now, again, I don't do that anymore. And again, kind of the idea that like the DMARD is blunting the mm-hmm. immune uh, response from the ICI. That's right. Okay. But that same study also showed that if you start a DMARD, and the DMARDs that they um, documented in this study were methotrexate and azathioprine. Um, if you started it after initiation of ICI therapy, then it didn't blunt tumor response. So now I sort of think I'll let them flare and then treat them and then they'll have better tumor response. But this is based on one study. And the challenge is, is if they flare, so it's all about risk. So if somebody has a history of myositis and their myositis is well controlled and now they have metastatic melanoma. Uh, and they're say they're on azathioprine, 100 milligrams a day, well-controlled myositis. That patient, I probably would not stop their azathioprine. I would probably continue it uh, because they have a 50% chance that their myositis will flare. Would I start them if they're off any DMARD? Start them on a DMARD as a prophylaxis? No, there's no data to do that. In fact, the data suggests, as Carrie said, the very limited data suggests not to do that. But because their risk of flare is 50%, of their underlying autoimmune disease, I would probably not stop it. Now, on the same token, if you have a rheumatoid arthritis patient, I think it's less bad to flare. You know, the, the problem with myositis flares in these patients is that they can be associated with other, the highest mortality is with myocarditis, which happens with myositis. And we don't know if it's the pre-existing disease, if it behaves the same as de novo, and that's the problem. But uh, myositis, I would not want to flare. Inflammatory arthritis, I'd be fine to have it flare and then treat. So we still have to contextualize the riskiness of their underlying rheumatic disease, mm-hmm. even though, of course, like the cancer is perhaps the most important consideration. That's perhaps the most fatal thing. The rheumatic disease is also still important. But we have to adjust therapies case so by case. It depends still. how fatal their or high risk their rheumatic diseases. And it also depends on the flare rate of that specific 
rheumatic disease. And I was kind of surprised when I was reviewing the most recent pre-existing autoimmune paper. They had like, I can't remember, seven lupus patients or something. Only one of the lupus patients flared, and it was a very mild flare compared to other ones where it's more like 50% flare rate. And that probably has to do with the underlying mechanism of lupus, which I tend to think is more B cell versus T cell um, activation with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So I think we're going to learn so much more about this, and it's going to be much more um, disease-specific, drug-specific, tumor-specific. So maybe Canrio will teach us a little bit about those things. So what is Canrio actually working on right now? What's in the pipeline? So Canrio, we we literally just got our central ethics approval like a month ago. So we're just starting. We're a baby network. I think one of our strengths is that we're a national network. Uh, we have sites all across Canada uh, and very keen people who are interested in collecting this. But a, another big strength is that we've already collaborated with other countries who are doing similar things. So even when we were developing our methodology, what we were collecting, how we were collecting it, when we were collecting it. We aligned with a group in France and a group in Australia. So we're collecting similar data prospectively. We're linking that to bio data. So we're collecting serum and DNA. Um, And, you know, there's talk about collecting synovial biopsy samples and things like that eventually. That's our goal in the coming future, hopefully. Skin biopsy is another. And we're also trying to start a separate ultrasound protocol so that we can get ultrasound information on these same patients. And then we want to collect that data systematically, prospectively. Uh, And because, you know, I think that as Carrie mentioned, it really depends, all of this depends on the type of cancer, the type of treatment, the type of, the type of, you know, the phenotype of their their autoimmune adverse event, um, and then also how they're treated. So the more information we get on the diverse types of patients and, and expressions of uh, adverse events, the more we're going to be able to answer some of these questions. So the other, the other focus of Canrio, concurrent to the research part, is the education part. And that's, Carrie can speak more about that. So Janet Roberts and I, uh, another member of Canrio, we're putting together Sierra Grant right now to try and get some funding to put together a website that will allow us to house a lot of resources and information coming out of Canrio. And we also want to build some learning modules that are interactive, case-based, for rheumatologists, oncologists, um, clinical assistants, anyone who is looking after patients who have these rheumatic adverse events. Um, I think a huge part of doing research is obviously disseminating it, so we're hoping this is one of the platforms that we can use. Shaheen, if clinicians have patients like this, where should they go for help? So at Canrio, we are trying to be clinically focused. And one of the strengths of Canrio is that we pretty much have a Canrio investigator at most of the academic sites across Canada. If you have a patient and you don't know what to do, the CRA website will have a map of Canrio so you can find your Canrio champion uh, in your area who's interested in patients with rheumatic IRAEs. And you can either call them for some phone advice or you can refer patients to them. If you don't have a Canrio investigator, I'm happy to take phone calls and give you phone advice, as are other Canrio members, whoever's close to you. Uh, the other thing that we have are some podcasts that were, no, case rounds. This is a podcast. This is a podcast. <laughs> you're, on, you're on a podcast now. Yeah, yeah. we should start doing podcasts. <laughs> no, no, no. I can't. I'm not sure what podcasts <laughs> we are. So, Carrie, what is the case rounds? Yeah, we'd like to um, 
start these case rounds so that there is a place you can go to. If you have a case, there'll be a few of us Camrio members um, attending each one. Um, so we can discuss it, offer our advice. We'd love to learn from you guys as well. So I think that'll be a really nice resource for all of us to share information and learn from each other. So stay tuned. That should be coming. And I'm sure we'll send out an announcement through CRA when that starts up. That's such a great idea. Thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. It was really great talking to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs> very fun. That was Dr. Carrie Yee, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of Alberta, and Dr. Shaheen Jamal, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. The Canadian Research Group of Rheumatology and Immuno-Oncology is a new national research network focusing on immune checkpoint inhibitors and their rheumatic immune-related adverse events. As these agents become more mainstream, rheumatologists are going to start seeing these patients regularly. We are going to need research groups like CanRio to educate us on how to manage these complicated patients. That's it for this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, Kevin Bagenoth, and Aaron Fontwell. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. We're supported by funding from Scotiabank, the Canadian Medical Association, and MD Financial. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.